it's never particularly easy to know what to talk about on the first night of a retreat. And I'm never sure whether it's right to be reassuring or consoling or encouraging or exhorting or <laughs> promising. It could be a whole variety of different things. So this evening I'd like to talk about refuge. Before we ever begin a retreat, I think most of us tend to have at least one or two thoughts about what the retreat will be for us. Sometimes we have thoughts about retreats we've done in the past that we either hope to repeat or improve upon or hope never to repeat. (laughs) But we do tend to think some, conjecture some, about what it will be. And sometimes we're very surprised at how very different our reality is than what we have thought it might be. It's impossible to predict. It's impossible to guarantee. In a way, that's not bad news. There's something very wonderful about truly having the openness to being surprised. To being surprised by ourselves, being surprised by our past, being surprised by... What actually comes to us on a retreat? Having the willingness actually to meet the reality of our moment rather than our thoughts about how it should be. And our capacity to be surprised rather than being caught in the shoulds is very often what allows us to follow or to explore new pathways in our lives. It's helpful to bear in mind that most of us actually don't end up in practice and don't end up on retreat by accident. There is some kind of intuitive call, intuitive urge, intuitive passion that brings us to practice. It brings us to meditation. It's often an intuitive call that we don't even at times articulate. And yet when we do reflect on what it is that really brings us here and what brings us to keep turning up on our cushion, to keep going out to walk, most of us within would recognize within ourselves the quality of longing, the quality of sacred longing for peace, for happiness, to find a a deeper spiritual core in ourselves. The longing of our hearts for understanding, for intimacy, for depth. This longing gets us here, often brings us back. And yet when we arrive, either on a retreat or even arrive in a single sitting and begin to dive more deeply into ourselves and more deeply into our practice, we do discover that being with ourselves, being present, is not always easy that this is one of the most challenging journeys that we make in our lives. And it is also the journey, one of the journeys that is the most significant and most transforming. We see that it's not easy to open. It's not easy always to dive beneath our shoulds, to dive beneath our images, to dive beneath our concepts, our expectations. It's, It's not always easy to open to ourselves and to everything that we meet in the moment. That it's not always easy to welcome the difficult. Of course, we would all love to sit all the time with pleasant sensations and pleasant thoughts and pleasant feelings. And yet there's something 
that grows within us, a quality of confidence, a quality of wholeness, a quality of honesty that really also comes from our willingness to meet the difficult and the the challenging. It's not always easy to make sense of what is happening for us. It's not always easy to sense the way that some of the most challenging moments, the most challenging feelings, the most challenging thoughts we meet in a retreat are in themselves at times the most powerful gateways to some of the deepest lessons, some of the most profound lessons we can ever learn. When we find ourselves sitting with agitation and restlessness, when we find ourselves sitting with dullness and chatter and discontent and doubt, and that whole kind of stream of consciousness that we may find ourselves sitting with, Our first response or our first inclination is, of course, to think, well, this is really bad news. You know, this is a problem, that it's an obstacle that I should get over. It's something to to fix. We often think that. Or it's something to resolve. It sometimes doesn't seem apparent the way in which this roller coaster of our heart and mind that we meet on retreat, this is where we learn. It's where we learn about really what compassion is, what patience is, what generosity is, what acceptance is. And it's also, I I mentioned, where we learn really what freedom is. Of course, it would be perhaps terribly reassuring if we sat up here on the first day or the first night of a retreat and and gave a lot of promises, you know, and said, oh, well, tomorrow you're probably going to wake up and have a really blissful day. You know, it's going to be absolutely fine, you know, and and all of this difficulty today is never going to reoccur and, you know, just, just wait it out. And yet somehow... Reassurance is is a very poor substitute for life. And it's a very poor substitute for understanding our lives. And we're not actually here to reassure ourselves. We're not here to ignore our lives. We're here actually to learn about wisdom, about depth, about connectedness. What becomes really so apparent in meditation practice that in life, as in in our practice, we are asked to meet and embrace all of ourselves, to dive deeply beneath appearances, and to learn how to find freedom in the company of our demons and in the midst of struggle. It is said that if you want to know about your past, look at your mind now. And if you want to know about your future, look at your mind now. Now this mind that you experience today, believe it or not, it uh, is a product. It is born of what has gone before. It's not something that's just a meditation mind that you unpacked out of your suitcase. It is born of what has gone before. But it is also this mind, today's mind, that we are concerned with, that we live in, that we experience, that we become interested in. The mind and the heart of the past, even of the last moment, of course, even though we we might not want to accept it, that we can't actually change, alter, modify, or recover what has already gone by. But this moment, we need to appreciate its potentiality. That in this moment, we are actually giving birth to our future heart and mind. And in this moment, we can also learn the ways 
of nurturing and cultivating a heart and mind that can be transformed. And that is transformed, actually, by our very willingness to be present with it. This is a practice of reclaiming ourselves. It is a practice of learning how to reconnect and open to our heart and mind of this moment. In this practice, one of the greatest acts of kindness we are discovering and nurturing is the kindness of ceasing to abandon ourselves. The kindness of not abandoning any aspect of ourselves. That with investigation, with our willingness to probe the present, it is also our willingness to nurture and to discover a vastness of being, the possibilities of our heart and mind in each moment. If you were to go and practice in a more traditional setting of a monastery or sometimes, too, on retreats here in the West, very often in the beginning of a retreat, we're invited to take refuge, to take refuge in what is called the the Triple Gem, the Three Jewels of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. In fact, in many monasteries, of course, that is how the day begins, is in taking refuge in the triple gem. Sometimes people in the West have said to me that when they come across this invitation to take refuge, that they kind of tune out, that it it feels somewhat maybe meaningless for them, or it feels very Asian, or... That it, that it feels actually kind of religious or, or traditional. So tonight I, I'd just like to actually reflect a little bit on what it means to take refuge. That if we, if we were to strip away the religiosity of it, um, if we strip away the images that we associate with the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and to reflect on what it actually might mean for us. To me, there are three aspects to taking refuge. And the first of those aspects is the dimension of sanctuary. Really exploring and discovering what it means to find a core of balance and protection and strength and trust within our own being. What it means to find that that core of of protection, of, of steadiness within ourselves and within each moment. Sanctuary, the discovery of sanctuary, is actually learning to find inwardly our own capacity for calmness, for serenity, that is deep enough and strong enough that it is actually not shattered by the storms of our lives or of our hearts and minds. The second part or the second dimension of refuge to me is is about vision. Learning really to have a very deep confidence and trust in our capacity for wholeness, for freedom, and for profound compassion. Consciously nurturing what is possible for each of us, rather than resigning ourselves to what is impossible. The third dimension of refuge, area of refuge, is actually about intention, exploring what it means to have a life of commitment, a life of clear intention. It's a way of acknowledging how intention is actually what really connects us with each each moment. Intention, the kind of intention that we live with, is, is what bridges us. It is the bridge to being present, to being awake. That it is intention, very often, that that teaches us to live in a sacred way. 
And it is intention that is the path to embodiment. You know, intention is what makes the difference between just living in a world of of fantasy and wishful thinking and hopes about what might be and rather than the reality of true connectedness and embodiment in the moment. And intention is actually what teaches us how to, to embody, to manifest the care, the compassion, the freedom we most deeply value. The first of the refuges, we are invited to take refuge in the Buddha. Now this is actually not really an invitation to take refuge in a historical figure that lived 2,500 years ago. Sometimes I think it's important to remember that for hundreds of years after the death of the Buddha, there weren't any Buddha statues. There wasn't any kind of personal reverence. In fact, the Buddha was often represented by by footsteps in in the sand or the symbol of a wheel which portrayed the teaching. And what was really portrayed in those symbols was not so much the figure of the Buddha, but Buddha nature, the profound and liberating freedom that is possible for each of us. Very often when we think about the Buddha, you know, we we think about the statues that seem actually, you know, kind of removed (laughs) from who we are. doesn't look like us sitting up there. I think to more deeply understand refuge, we actually need to forget about the statues. You know, there's that wonderful Zen saying, you know, that if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. We kind of need to go beneath what the statues are and to think of their story, to think of their message and their invitation, to be able to acknowledge inwardly that when we face a Buddha statue, when we take refuge in the Buddha, when we bow to the Buddha, we are actually facing ourselves. We are bowing to ourselves and we are learning to take refuge in the very profound calmness and wisdom and compassion in our own hearts and minds. Buddha statues are are placed facing the world. They represent, their story is a story of compassion. It's a story of kindness. It's a story of being a whole and awakened human being. The Buddha was often described by his compatriots as ever smiling, ever smiling. And this, I think, is really the essence of our practice, that it it actually is helpful to remember, that we are learning to smile upon ourselves. We are learning to smile within ourselves, not a kind of smile of superficiality or... um, meaninglessness, but as a gesture of kindness, as a gesture of receiving, a gesture of connectedness, and a gesture of wakefulness. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we are also taking refuge, and I think in our own capacity, to see what is true and to bring to an end sorrow and struggle and anger wherever they appear. In listening to the story or in sensing the story within the statues, what we sense is a very human heart. The personal quest, the personal quest, the personal vision quest, we all follow as we answer our own longing for happiness, for freedom, for compassion, to be deeply rooted in spiritual depth, This is not a vision quest that ever just belonged to one person. This is the kind of lineage of awakening of which we are all part. Our longing for intimacy, our longing for the end of fear and separation, this is actually something to deeply honor, to hold clearly in our hearts. Because it is that longing for the end of separation, the longing for death, the longing for awakening, 
that is really the beginning of a spiritual path. It is why we're here, why we are here. And it is part of the cloth and the fabric of vision. And sometimes we do forget that, you know. We, we do get, you know, very embroiled, very caught in the details of the moment, the, the events of the moment, the changes of the moment, the stories of the moment. And it's good for us to remember that in those moments we are actually not really lost. We are just Buddhas with amnesia. And there are times, I think for all of us, that we we can suffer a failure, almost a surrender of vision. You know, it's so easy when we get entangled or caught in in a conflict, in in a story, in a struggle, in a a disappointment. We, We kind of, we forget, don't we? We feel like this is going to be the theme for eternity, you know, that this is going to be our, a kind of life sentence, that we're, we're always going to be like this. You know, we're always going to be sad, or we're always going to be angry, or we're always going to feel inadequate, or we're always going to feel powerless. And, and it's so easy to get sucked into that, that kind of eternal feeling of it. And that's when we kind of build up our life story because when we get contracted within those struggles and those events, very often we, we look to the past and we say, oh yes, you know, I've, I've been here before, I know this one. We remember all our times of conflict, all our times of alienation, all our times of fear and anger. And we think everything is impermanent except this. This is also going to be our future. You know, and it will go on and on. This sometimes happens, but not always. Sometimes, actually, we do also remember. You know, the struggles come, the conflicts come, the entanglement comes. And yet, when we really look at our lives, we see, actually, the sense of possibility. Maybe we sense the ways that we really have begun to be more awake in our lives, to have more confidence in ourselves. Perhaps we sense the ways in which there there has been actually and there is a growing kindness, a growing compassion, a growing awareness. And we begin to sense the possibilities both of the present and the future. And our confidence in what we can understand our confidence and our sense of possibility to grow grows. I think it is far too easy for us in this life to be tempted to settle for far less than that which is possible for us. When our inner sense of vision is somehow impaired or wounded, we may even find ourselves relating to meditation or relating to practice as as a way of coping more skillfully with the difficult in our lives. But this practice is actually about, is more than about coping. This practice is actually about being free. It's about being awake. And somehow it is so important for us to reclaim that sense of possibility within our own being. Because when, when we're, our, our sense of vision is somehow impaired and we get more into a coping mode, we, 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 we have such a limited sense of possibility. You know, we think, oh, well, you know, in this retreat, it would be really good luck, you know, if I had a few insights. But it's, insights are not good luck. You know, insights we cultivate. We create a climate of insight. We create a climate of understanding born of our own energy, born of our own efforts, born of our own intentions. It's not just good luck. You know, when our sense of vision is somehow impaired, we think, oh, well, maybe I'll get a little more peace and a little bit more, more, more equanimity. And we're already expecting or anticipating the ways that's going to disappear when we leave a retreat. This is a good kind of thinking, actually, to let go of. Because taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in our capacity to be awake much deeper than just some transient retreat experience, much deeper than just coping. 
we learn to remind ourselves again and again that liberation and wakefulness is actually our heritage. That profound and unshakable freedom and compassion is actually possible for each one of us. When you see the Buddha statues, the Buddha images, most often the Buddha is portrayed as seated on a lotus flower. And in Asia, lotus flowers don't grow and thrive in water that's very clean or pure. In fact, the more slime and the more mud, the more beautiful the lotus flowers grow. It's not an accident that the Buddha is portrayed as seated on a lotus flower. Because the the enduring message in this tradition is that we actually really never do find wisdom and compassion, the wisdom and compassion that we seek for, outside of this body, this mind, this heart, and this life. The enduring message of this practice is that nibbana or awakening is not separate from samsara or from life. That the mud is good. The mud is helpful. The mud is where we learn. The mud is where we actually find more and more what it means to be free. That we learn actually to bring a little bit more lightness into those places that seem very dark and contracted that we learn to find a little bit more peace in those moments that feel so chaotic and turbulent, that we learn to find and nurture just a little more loving kindness in those places that feel most angry and aversive. The Buddha was actually described or, or sometimes translated as the awakened one. And this is what we're learning to do here. You know, we're, we're learning to be awake in our lives and we're learning really to be awakened by all things. This is the most important of all lessons. You know, I think in all of our lives, we will all meet times when our worlds seem to fall apart, when when our certainty disappears in so many different ways. You know, the times when our bodies break down, the, the times when people that we love die, the times when people that we've trusted disappoint us, the times when we sometimes disappoint ourselves. These tragic moments, sometimes tragic moments of great hurt and great fear, visit all of us. You know, and it's it's not that our lives are always caught in tragedy. I mean, sometimes we come on retreat and you know, everything in our lives has really been pretty calm and pretty together. And, we, you know, and then we come on retreat and we think, oh, you know, this is, this is going to be a breeze. You know, I'm going to walk this one. And then we come and we sit, you know, and suddenly, out of nowhere, there seems to come these emotional, psychological storms that surprise us and somehow leave us floundering. And all the time in this life and all the time in this practice, we keep visit visiting and revisiting these, these eternal and, and constant wake-up calls that tell us that we really can't control anything at all inwardly or outwardly and that we can't armor ourselves against change. We can't and really are not trying to transcend this body or this mind or this life. You know, and it can take us so long. It seems such a long path at times. This, this path of learning to make peace with our lives, of ma- learning to make peace with change, of learning to make peace with the unexpected, of learning to make peace with all that we lose and all that arises. Because these are actually the lessons of harmony. It's hard, the hard lessons, you know, and very often we don't want to learn them, you know. Instead, we're, we find ourselves kind of chuntering away, you know, with these stories and say, why is this happening? You know, why is this happening? You know, life is unfair. This shouldn't be happening. You know, who am I going to blame? Or who am I going to accuse? Shouting. And yet, 
all the accusations, the blame, the resistance, it really doesn't make the slightest bit of difference, does it? It's the way that we kind of layer suffering upon suffering. You know, where did this practice begin? The acknowledgement that there is the unsatisfactory and at times there is suffering in this life. And sometimes suffering, you know, the word that's used is dukkha. And one part of dukkha is, is of course, the anguish, the pain that, that can come to us in this life that we can't avoid. And there's another kind of dukkha which is sometimes called double dukkha, dukkha dukkha. You know, and dukkha dukkha is when, yeah, we've got some pain, when there's some anguish, there's some difficulty, and then we've got this extra layer of dukkha, of suffering, that's saying, that is resistance and saying this shouldn't be happening, you know, that, that life should be different than it is. That is double dukkha. And personally, I think Westerners have, have perfected the art of triple dukkha. Because not only do we have the anguish and then the resistance and the aversion to the suffering, then we feel guilty about having it. And say, oh no, I shouldn't be saying this shouldn't be happening. We have triple dukkha. Where do we turn in those moments when we feel so groundless? Where would we turn if we, we were just able to forsake the pathways of resistance and blame and aversion? Where would we turn in those moments where we feel overwhelmed? Those are the moments, actually, where this whole dimension of refuge is so important. Being able to turn to ourselves, being able to have confidence in ourselves, being able to find that core within ourselves of steadiness and balance, of kindness and forgiveness. It's not about getting over things. You know, sometimes I think we have this, this very romantic dream in meditation or in life too, you know, that once I get over this, then I'll be calm. You know, or once this is over, then I'll be happy to be equanimous, you know. Or when I get over this, it's kind of like this longing to, for life to stop in some way. Longing for life to to reach some sort of plateau of settledness. Recently, I, I read something, someone said that people long to be settled, and yet it's only as long as we're unsettled that there is hope for us. True meditation is not just about the moments of joy and stillness which can and do very much come. True meditation is also in those moments when our hearts feel the most numb and all the doors seem closed. Pain does come to us in this life. Tragedy does come to us in this life. There is much that we can lose. And yet the greatest tragedy and the greatest loss is losing faith in our capacity to be awake. Losing faith in our capacity for wisdom and for compassion. We learn how to sit on our own lotus flowers in this practice and not think of them always as bad news. You know, time when I was practicing in Asia, I know I used to have, before I was awakened to the reality used to have the, the notion that Asian monasteries, you know, were these places of great peace and tranquility and serenity. The reality is that most often Asian monasteries are the noisiest places in the world. And I remember there was a time, you know, when I was in a monastery in Thailand, and I was pretty sick and emaciated and kind of troubled by a lot of things that were going on there, all the hierarchies and rituals and... Asian monasteries are often in a constant process of construction. We come to know this. They're always building something, you know. And one time, you know, I was sitting in this monastery and I saw the scaffolding come in, you know, and start to get put up again. And I was kind of at the end of my tether, you know, with everything else. And I remember going to the abbot and saying, you know, really... How, how can you possibly expect me to meditate? 
with all of this noise. And he said to me, how can you not? How can you not? When we feel groundless, when we feel bereft, when we feel uncertain, our greatest refuge is not in trying to explain everything, to fix everything. Sometimes our greatest refuge is in our capacity to stand still, to open, to listen deeply, to connect with the bare simplicity of one moment at a time. At times our refuge lies in surrendering our desperate desire to get rid of things or to find solutions or to explain everything. Our refuge is in being present. This is pain. This is chaos. This is uncertain. This does hurt. This is where our lotus flower grows. There are times in our lives when doing and acting are really needed. And there are times when simplicity and stillness are actually our greatest refuge. I think the times when we're most tempted to flee from the moment, to flee from what's happening, these are actually the times when it's the most important to return. It's returning to this moment is very often a gesture of freedom, in search of freedom. When the Buddha was once asked about the difficulties that we encounter in traveling this path, He answered that if I did not have the faith that it was possible for you to do this, I would not ask it of you. That because I have the faith, the confidence, that it is possible for you to be awake, to be free, to know a depth of compassion, I ask it of you. This was a very inclusive statement. You know, he didn't say that, you know, because you're from Holland or from Texas, you know, you can't do this, you know. Or, you know, if you don't have the right body or the right spiritual portfolio, you can't do this. This was a very inclusive statement. Because I have confidence that it is possible for you to do this, I ask it of you. Returning to the simplicity of what is 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 so often a way also of reclaiming vision and also creating sanctuary, refuge in just this one moment, being present. You know, think of the countless ways we try to find refuge in this life, that sometimes we try to find refuge in our opinions, in our strategies. Sometimes we try to take refuge in our formulas, in our our techniques. Sometimes we take refuge try to take refuge in other people, in their opinions and their certainties and their habits. And all the time we flee from ourselves and try to take refuge in these things, we discover that they crumble. And when we try to take refuge in something that can't offer refuge, even in our fantasies or our habits, our minds become very agitated. We become very restless. And sometimes the greatest protection... The greatest protection for the agitated mind is to stay simple, to appreciate the power of attention. We protect our mind. We protect calmness and nurture calmness by being with just this, just this feeling, just this sensation, just this sound. Not I am or you are or the world is, but just this. Sometimes when we're most agitated are the times when recognizing in those moments actually our mind is not our ally very often. In the times when we're most agitated often our mind is not our friend but instead too often undermines faith and vision. That our stories are not always our refuge because as they tell us what we think, they tell us what we think about ourselves, what we think about the past, what we think about the future. They very rarely tell us just what is. But learning to be with the simplicity of just this one moment, this feeling, this sound, this breath, we are in that moment forming a relationship. We're forming a relationship. And that relationship 
of being present rather than trying to flee from is actually what makes everything in this life approachable and understandable. That we can investigate, we can be touched by, we can learn from, we can be awakened by all things. (coughs) We learn too to take refuge in the Dharma, to take refuge in the teaching, in the path. Essentially taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in what is true. It is helpful to recognize that this path has a direction. I mean, I've said this so many times. You know, we we talk a lot about acceptance, about being with what is in this path, but that's not passivity and it's not resignation. We don't ever do this to stay the same. We do this. This is a journey. It's a journey towards peace, a journey towards happiness, a journey towards clarity, a journey towards understanding. It's a journey in which we're consciously fostering greatness of heart and profound clarity of mind. And all of these qualities, they're not distant destinations. They're not future goals. As I mentioned this morning, they're not things that we postpone. And we think, you know, let me struggle for a while and then I'll be happy. You know, let me endure for a while and then I'll be peaceful. Let me figure this out, and then I'll be calm. Those qualities are qualities that we actually seek to cultivate in the midst of all things. We learn to turn calmness, peace, happiness, mindfulness, forgiveness, compassion, we learn to turn them all into verbs. So we really learn in this practice how to live peace, how to embody calmness, how to practice sensitivity, how to walk and breathe mindfulness. The practice, the path, is a way of bringing Buddha nature, our own Buddha nature, into focus. The practice is a way of bringing our own capacity for wisdom into focus. It's a way of breathing life into freedom, of authenticating wisdom and of healing fragmentation. Taking refuge in the Dharma, in a way, is also, it's a kind of way of clarifying what our intention is in this life, of understanding what it means to live a committed life, a dedicated life. It's so important to let go of the idea that meditation is something that we just do on a cushion, you know, for a period of time, to to let go of the idea that there's somehow a beginning and an ending to meditation, that's something we pick up and put down. It's so helpful to cultivate the prospect of living in a meditative spirit, of living in a spirit of clarity, a spirit of sensitivity, a spirit of connectedness. Intention is really a path of the moment. It's not a path of the future. It's a path of the moment, of, of remembering every time we come in here to sit, what is this time in the service of? When we, when we go out to walk, what is that walking meditation dedicated to? What is it in the service of? When we stand in the lunch line, what's that time dedicated to? When we greet the person beside us, you know, who's snuffling or sneezing or restless, how do we meet them? You know, the Buddha talked over and over about the the quality, the transforming quality of wise intention. And he didn't have a big list of intentions. You know, it wasn't really a very big menu. Talked about three wise intentions. You know, the, the intention of renunciation, the intention of loving kindness, the intention of compassion. Do we need more in this life? It's kind of like that's enough. Those intentions to be nurtured, to be cultivated in every moment, they transform each moment. Taking refuge in the Dharma is really to study life, to reflect upon our lives, to investigate our lives, to investigate the moment, to see what's true, to see what leads to happiness and freedom, to see what leads to conflict and sorrow. Taking refuge in the Dharma It's really taking our seat in mindful awareness rather than confusion. And it's bigger than just what we do on a cushion. 
You know, the Dharma includes everything, everything that's human, everything that's animal, the earth, the sky, everything that can be seen, everything that can be heard and touched inwardly and outwardly. The Dharma includes all forms. It includes emptiness, our thoughts, our emotions, our bodies, the spot of dust illuminated by the sun. These are all the Dharma. We learn to be awakened by them. Milarepa was a great Tibetan saint who said that a wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. Even this wandering thought is the essence of wisdom. Holds everything that we need for transformation. And I think when we really learn how to live in a meditative spirit, we do come so deeply to understand that nothing is irrelevant, that everything is so worthy of our wholehearted presence because then we live in a sacred way. Mindfulness illuminates all things and allows us to be awakened by all things. You know, a few months ago I was teaching in Switzerland and the center was high up in the mountains and I arrived there very late at night when it was dark and I woke up in the morning and looked out the window and some of you may have been to Switzerland, but these Alps are pretty impressive things, you know. I woke up in the morning, looked out the window and there was just this whole panorama of the Alps kind of in our face. And it was so interesting because the clouds would gather in the valley below us, you know, and when you were kind of up there and the clouds were below, it was like floating in space and there was just this this kind of pristine clarity of this mountain range. And then very often the clouds would suddenly raise, you know, and you'd be in this fog and you could be anywhere. You could be anywhere in the world, you know. You could be in Africa, you know. You, you, could, you could be in Massachusetts, you know, you could be anywhere. You could be anywhere. It was just fog, you know. And it was so easy in the midst of that fog that would sometimes last for days, actually. The fog would sometimes go on for days. You kind of forget those mountains were actually there. You know, there was this sort of distant memory of this incredible beauty, and you'd sort of forget it. And suddenly the sun would come out, and the fog would clear, and they were just there again. And, of course, and I'm sure everyone who ever practices there and teaches there will start to get it, you know, that when we're lost in the fog, we could be anywhere. We could be anywhere. We lose intention. We lose dedication. And, actually, we forget ourselves. We forget the beauty of that stillness, that clarity, that wakefulness that's possible for us. And yet, when it returns, when the fog lifts... It's not like this is some, you know, shocking surprise. We say, aha, I remember. I remember this is possible. I remember this is what is possible with my own heart and mind. And you know this practice of recollection? It is about remembering that beauty. It is remembering what is possible and taking refuge within it. When we learn really to be awake and are awakened by all things, we discover what is true. We we find harmony with change. We find harmony with births and deaths. We find harmony with interdependence. We find harmony with form and emptiness. We discover that there isn't any refuge in grasping and holding and resistance, that these are only recipes for disaster. They're recipes for disharmony, and we learn... Actually, the kindness of letting go of that. We take refuge in the Dharma as a way of making a commitment to ourselves. We also take refuge in the Sangha, the community of the wise that we commit ourselves to in each moment. We take refuge in the Sangha not only in the long line of teachers and mystics and practitioners that have traveled this pathway before us, we honor their legacy, but we also take refuge more deeply in the kinship of all things. We actually are learning in taking refuge to go beyond the boundaries, to go beyond the borders of I and you and us and them, of inner and outer, and to acknowledge our essential interdependence and interconnection.
on so many different levels. Acknowledging the ways that, w- that are, how universal is our longing for happiness, for peace, for love, for depth. How universal is our yearning to be free from fear and pain. We acknowledge that our capacity for, for struggle and harm and conflict knows no boundaries. And we acknowledge that the person before us is ourselves in a different form. The Sangha then is the person who sits beside us. It's the homeless person on the street, the famine victim in Africa, the person we dislike the most and the person that we love the most. We acknowledge our kinship. And somehow within that we learn to release a little bit the mind of judgment And we come, in releasing the mind of judgment, much closer to freedom. And we really, I think we come to understand that really to be, find the end of suffering, we actually all need to awaken together. To find in our own hearts the willingness to be awakened by the Sangha around us, our worst enemy, the people we fear, and the people we're close to. Because somehow that acknowledgement of kinship, of intimacy, is also the birthplace of compassion. And compassion, too, knows no boundaries. In the practice in taking refuge, we're actually not just following in the footsteps of the Buddha, but we're really learning to meet the heart of the Buddha within ourselves and within each moment. If we take just a couple of moments quietly together. <coughs> 